Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Chris Anderson. I'm the Ralph Dondorf Professor of European Politics and Society. And my job is to welcome you to this hybrid event uh, hosted by the LSE's European Institute. I'm really pleased to be joined by and to be welcoming Prime Minister Alexander de Croo today to the LSE for this event. It's a full house, as we can tell, and we don't have that much time, so I'll give a brief introduction and then get out of the way of the really important business of the day. So let me tell you really quickly, for those of you who are perhaps not European and not paying close attention to European politics, Alexander de Croo is Prime Minister of Belgium. He took the oath of office on the 1st of October 2020. So he's a veteran already of being the leader of his country and of political affairs in Europe. He leads a coalition that's made up of socialists, liberals, Christian Democrats, and Greens, the four largest political groups in Belgium. The De Croo government is the first, and this is notable, gender equal government in Belgium's history. Um, the event of course, it's very timely. Belgium will enter 2024 as the rotating chair of the European Union. So Prime Minister Le is not just here as Prime Minister of his country, but of course also to some extent, or to a really important extent, as a representative of the European Union. As one of the founding fathers of founding members of the European Union, Belgium presides over the EU for the 13th time now. The number might sound a little bit unlucky or lucky, depending on who you ask. Uh, of course, the challenges ahead are definitely daunting, not just for him, but for all of us. That said, Prime Minister de Croo will talk about the strengths of the Union, its relationship with the UK, and the ways in which the EU needs to reform to stay in shape. For those of you who are avid Twitter users out there in Twitterland, the hashtag for today's event is hashtag LSE Belgium. A couple of things about the event so everyone behaves and everyone knows what's happening. I would ask you to please put your phones on silent. This is a really good time to check and do that. Um, the event is being recorded for those of you who want to re-watch it and hopefully be made available as a podcast, subject to no def technical difficulties, which we, of course, at the LC never really have. Uh, we will start with a speech by Prime Minister de Croo. I will then use my privileges as a chair to ask a question or two. And then, of course, we'll turn to you, um, the history and tradition of the LSE is to have vigorous and robust discussion, so we'll look to you to ask some very interesting questions. For the online audience, you can submit your questions via the online Q&A function. And uh, for those of you here in the theater, I will let you know when it's time to ask questions and raise your hands. How's that for the rules of the road? We're all ready to go. So without further ado, I welcome Prime Minister de Croo to LSE. So, good afternoon, everyone, and uh, first of all, thank you for having me. I'm here uh, one day and a half in the, in the UK. I, had, I have two important meetings, one with your Prime Minister and one with you. Both are equally important. <laughs> and uh, really looking forward to be able to, uh, to talk about European Union and talk about Europe. 
Now, in the, uh, in the world of today, it's good to have friends. And not only on a personal level, it's good to have friends. People with friends in general are more happy. But also, politically speaking, it's not fun to be alone in this world today. And countries who are alone over the past years all have done efforts to actually move away from that status of being alone and try to be part of, for example, NATO or other organizations. Um, between the United Kingdom and the European Union, neighbors we are. And we will always remain uh, neighbors. I mean, geography is not going to change anytime soon. Uh, friends, I think we are. And friends, of course, is a, is a flexible notion and is something that is actually not that hard to achieve. Partners, that is the real endeavor. And partners really demands, uh, demands an effort. And of course, if we look at the last 10 years, yes, we have a history between the European Union and the United Kingdom, which was, not, uh, which was not an easy one. But I would say now that the dust of Brexit has, uh, has fallen, I'm convinced that we have a lot to offer one another. There is a channel between us, but we have a past in common, and I'm convinced that we also have a future in, uh, in common. I am a strong believer of international cooperation. And I know that there are some voices in the world that say multilateralism or international cooperation is dead. I vigorously disagree with that. Maybe it will have changed a bit, but international cooperation is here to stay if we want to live in security and if we want to have a prosperous life. And, and maybe we have to look back a bit on when did, uh, when did international cooperation really got its, got its kickstart? And, and, and what were the circumstances when different countries thought, you know, it's maybe not a bad idea to what, what I would call pool sovereignty. Take a part of sovereignty of your own country and pull it together together with, uh, with, with others. What were the drivers of that? What were the origins of, uh, of that? Well, if we look at, at the start of the European Union, we, we started with a concept right after the Second World War, which was called the European Community of Coal and Steel. Now, this dates from 1951. And the whole idea was, of course, after the war, and a big part of origins of war are very often economic imbalances or economic balances of power which were not being managed in the right, uh, in the right way. And access to energy, at that moment being coal, access to steel or to heavy, heavy industry in the large, uh, in the large sense, was, has always been an element of tension. And the idea of the European community of coal and steel was to say, well, let's create a mechanism that avoids that there would be any power play in that dimension, that avoids that certain countries would be in a dependency which was unhealthy, and that really pulls that together. And the six countries that pulled that together, they were definitely not at the same strength in that, uh, on, that, on that dimension. But avoiding that power play based on energy and based on resources, that was the core reason why the European Community of Coal and Steel started. And it 
was the start of something which became way bigger than what anyone would have expected. Avoiding power play on energy and on rare resources. Does sound familiar, right? It's not that different today. The coal of the 50s, one could say it's the fossil fuels of today. The steel of the 50s still plays a role today, but one could say that it's more about rare, rare earths, rare minerals, and, and, and so on. But the economic environment in which we are worldwide is actually one where economic power play is back in the game and is really back at the, uh, at the, uh, at, at, at the forefront. And, and as I said, the European Union, some people say it is, is it an economic project? Was it a peace project? It's not or. It's and, but the core of it was if we create a healthy economic environment without the power play that I just described, then peace will come out of it. And, and peace did come out of it for a period of 75, uh, of 75 years. We were able to, um, to, 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 to maintain that on the European continent. Unfortunately, it was a rude awakening for us Europeans a few, uh, a few years ago. That is the core for me of, of where international cooperation came from. And it then went much further because you could say, well, this is a way of avoiding economic uh, power play. But of course, if we look at the world of today, if you look at all the, the major challenges that we, uh, that we have, climate change, insecurity, migration flows, terrorism, making sure that trade flows can, uh, can, can continue, all these big endeavors are endeavors where no single country, even the bigger ones, even the economic powerful ones can say, I can handle this on my own. I mean, in all those big endeavors that we as a rather young generation we see in front of us, all of them, there is no other way to solve them than by doing that in, um, in, in, in international uh, cooperation. The world economy is under pressure, and, and, and that economic power play that I, that I just described based on minerals, uh, based on, on access to resources, based on knowledge, based on data uh, as well, the economy is under pressure. It's no accident that democracies are under pressure as well. And it's exactly the same pressure that we are, um, that we are seeing, and, and, and democracy We've had long discussions on are there better models, is there something which is more effective. Up to now, no other model has, has proven to be, to be more effective. To me, democracy is an eternal struggle of trying to make it as good as possible. But my experience over the last 15 years is that um, democracy is an exercise in imperfect solutions. You try to come to solutions which build a greater good, but almost always for the individual person, it is the imperfect solution because it's not exactly what that person or that party or that group or whoever would have thought that it, um, that it, uh, that, that it be. And so when we are faced with um, extreme ideas, with, with populism and, and, and so on, what I want to come to is, is that the protection of, of democracy and, and making those imperfect solutions maybe a little bit more perfect, there is a very strong link with, with, with a strong economy. 
And when I talk about a, a strong economy, a strong economy is, is, is one that is resilient, is one where economic growth serves the people and serves in as broad range of people as, uh, as, uh, as possible, and that gives people a perspective and that maybe today especially reassures people on what you would call the fear of loss. If you look throughout the world, the economic, the classic economic numbers, let's say in Europe, are actually not that bad. I mean, what's the typical things we would look at? Purchasing power is actually quite good. Uh, unemployment numbers are lower than ever. Inflation is more or less under control. The tension between, the income tension between rich and poor is actually way better under control in most European countries than in, uh, than in the past. So with a classic lens, one would say, economic numbers should actually be quite sound. Obviously, what counts is that people look forward and have a fear that in the future it would actually not be that good, and, and this is something what we call fear, uh, fear of loss. And, and having a resilient economy is, is to me at the core of, um, of, uh, of that. How do you create that? Well, for us as politicians, what we do is we create the framework, we create an environment. I mean, a strong economy is created by, by, by all types of economic actors, but what we can do is to try to create an environment that is conductive or as conducive as possible for that. To me, that comes to three priorities. First of all, protect our people, protect our population, strengthen our economy and prepare our future. These are the three elements of the Belgian presidency of the European Union. Belgian presidency of the European Union, which is a bit at a particular moment in, uh, in, in time. We are at the end of the European five-year uh, tenure. We have European elections coming in, uh, in, in June, so the time frame in which we work is somewhat a more, more reduced one. But we also have an assignment to look forward to what should be the agenda for the next, uh, the next time period and, 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 and try to build an agenda for, uh, for that. Let me first start with um, first priority, which is protecting, uh, protecting people. It's, it's never been more tangible than today what it means to protect people as Europeans. We come out of a 75-year uh, period of, uh, of peace on the European continent, except for the, for the war in the, in, in the Balkans uh, during the 80s and the, and the 90s. But we really come out of an environment where democracies were thriving, where we were living in a rules-based order, where free market was, was really paying out its, its dividends, and it was a rude awakening to be confronted with, a, with, a, with an extremely aggressive actor being, uh, being, uh, being Russia. The unity that we showed as an answer was surprising to everyone, and I think the unity that we showed was really surprising to, uh, to Moscow. And that unity helped us, of course, in, in, in supporting Ukraine, and, and we can go more in detail in any of the questions if you, uh, if, if you want. But as always, a war is fought on the battlefield, but in the end, a war is built on a strong economy. And, and, and the unity that we as European countries have, have built has forced Russia to go into a full-fledged uh, war economy. They do that faster than what we can do on the, on, the European, uh, on the European continent. But with the European Union, which has an economic size which is eight times 
the one of Russia. I mean, I'm, I'm Belgian. The Benelux is often what we call mini-Europe, Netherlands, Luxembourg, and Belgium. The GDP of the Benelux is today higher than Russia, without natural resources and being a rather small part of the world, especially if you compare it to, uh, to, to, to Russia. Um, building that industrial base to support a war that we did not request should be our priority number one. Yes, on the European level, we have a package, uh, a 50 billion financial package that still needs to be decided, and we, did, we were not able at the previous council to decide on that element. We decided on Moldova and Ukraine to, become, uh, to start the accession talks. The, the financial package we did not agree on. We will have a, a, a second try to do that on, in, in, uh, in the next council, which is February, uh, February 1st. That is, of course, important to be able to continue finance uh, Ukraine. But in the end, what is the most important is that our defense industry, our security industry builds up. And our security industry obviously was not ready for a period of war where the output needs to increase dramatically. And we in Europe have had long discussions about do we need a common defense? Do we need a common European army? We have not gotten very far on that because that is really in the sequence of sovereignty that countries want to give away. Defense is a, is a, is a difficult one. But much more important than a discussion on a common European army is a common industrial policy based on defense. And, and, and there we see that throughout Europe it's very fragmented. I mean, most, most defense players are still very national based on, their, on the links that they have with their own, with their own defense. That is moving. And we, we see that that element, which is more the economic side of war, really is moving, um, is moving, uh, is moving fast. And, and that, to me, is the basis of how, if this is a war of attrition, we will continue to support Ukraine in, in, in fighting our values, fighting everything that we, uh, that we stand for. Protecting our people, there is a link to migration. If you would want to talk about migration, I invite you to ask me a question on that, but I will not go too much in detail on, uh, on that. Second topic is uh, strengthening our economy. Strengthening our economy is intimately linked with the green agenda. I mean, fighting climate change and a strong economy are two sides of the same, as the same coin. And, and for us as Europeans, waking up with the Inflation Reduction Act was a bit of a hard uh, awakening. And the reaction on the European side, I think mostly because we were so surprised at what came up, was, from my perspective, too negative. We have, for 10 years in a row, maybe for decades, we have tried to move our American friends on our side of the table on the green agenda. Now they do, it would be strange that you criticize them and tell them, well, no, that's not exactly what you expected. Yes, it's a different method. It is typically in US style, which is based on incentives, and we Europeans have a tendency to base everything on regulation. It's what we call carrots and sticks. Anglo-Saxon countries have a tendency to work on carrots. We have a tendency to work with sticks. Maybe as Europeans, we need a bit more carrots as well. As the European Union, we have a tendency to regulate quite well. And I think in a number of domains, if you look at GDPR and others, we've really been leading. 
The issue is if you are good at something, you have maybe a tendency to do it a bit too much. So one could say maybe we are focusing a bit too much on, on, on regulation and should also work on the, on the incentive side. And, and the answer on the Inflation Reduction Act in, in, in the European Union was first of all a short-term answer. And the short-term answer was to what we call relaxing state aid rules. We have in the single market very strict rules on how much can a government intervene in the, in the market and it's actually very, very limited. Those rules were relaxed and that's a short-term solution. It is now time to finally come with the real solution because loosening state aid rules weakens your single market. Whereas the answer to the endeavor we have is actually a stronger internal market. And, and now is the moment to do that. You might all have seen that uh, Jacques Delors, who is the father of the internal market, uh, passed away a few, uh, a, a few weeks ago. In internal market 2.0, or a sequel to what Jacques Delors has done, is the biggest priority that we have. When he came up with the single market approximately 30, 40 years ago, at that moment, no one could have imagined that we would be living in a digital world. No one could have imagined the geopolitical tensions that we, that we have. It is still a very fine piece of legislation that has been built, but it lacks on some dimension. It lacks on the financing dimension. Capital market in Europe really is not there. Banking union is not exactly there, and on the digital dimensions, and so many other dimensions actually we're, we're, we're lacking. So that should be a big part of the, uh, of the answer. The European continent is a continent of innovation. There's not many places in the world where that amount of innovation is being created. Now what we see is we innovate, then the financing of the industrialization we're not doing it, and then the industrialization itself happens on the other side of the world. To give you an example, Belgium as an economic model, we are way more than chocolate and beer. <laughs> Belgium is a country of innovation. You take any innovation index that, uh, that looks at Europe, Belgium is always top five on, on, in the most innovative countries we are a pharmaceutical life sciences powerhouse, we're a powerhouse in, um, in renewable energy, we are a powerhouse in semiconductor design. I mean, there's so many things in which fundamental research and innovation is happening in Belgium. Now, if I look at a lot, for example, in life sciences, if I look at a lot of our biotech startups, innovation is happening here. And then the financing of the scale-up that happens very often in the United States, fueled with money from European pension funds that are not investing here because the market is so fragmented that finance US hedge funds or others who then invest in our startups who actually do the innovation here. And then access to market, it's our American friends who get access to innovation first. And then after that, we go to Japan. And then in the end, with some luck, in the end, we Europeans in the end, get access to innovation that we created here. That is the core of the deficit that we see on the European continent, uh, on the European continent today. That's the answer to the Inflation Reduction Act. And yes, we of course in the meantime need to work on some incentive schemes as well for some of those technological models which maybe need a few years support to create the volume 
that we um, that we look at electrification in a broad sense, hydrogen and other uh, and other dimensions. For us, this really is at the core of our economy. Belgium is a country of chemistry. We are the second biggest chemical cluster in the world. Um, heavy industry and so on really is at the core of our economic model. It's the basis of prosperity. It's also geopolitical, more than ever a very important uh, element. Third element. I want to, to, to talk about this, is preparing our, uh, our future. Um, as you've seen, we have started the accession talks with, with Moldova and with, uh, with Ukraine. I think that is a very important message we're giving to Ukrainians, but it's a very important message we're giving to the world. But we as Europeans, before we get bigger, we need to get better. And the European Union, with all the benefits that it offers, needs to get better, needs to become more effective. Now, better and more effective to me is three domains. It's first of all, what are our priorities? If you look at the priorities by financial volume today, it's agriculture and, uh, and, and cohesion. Maybe other priorities need to be added to that. Maybe some things need to be reprioritized. Re Second question is, how do you finance it? Today, the full budget of the European Union is being financed by national contributions out of our budgets. Is that the way forward, or do we need to see an evolution in that? And then, of course, the decision process. Everyone will talk about unanimity vote, which obviously does play a role, but it goes much broader than, uh, than, uh, than, than, than that. And that agenda needs to happen in parallel. I mean, I'm not saying that moving from 27 to more countries is contingent on first being better internally, but it definitely needs to happen in parallel. And I think that moving beyond 27 might take some time. My feeling is that it is not tomorrow. And if it is the day after tomorrow, we need to do our homework as well. We have a tendency to say to candidate countries, do your homework. Well, we as well need to do our homework. Now, let me, uh, let me, let me conclude so you, you still have time to ask, uh, to ask questions. You might have noticed that in my whole speech, I've mixed European Union and Europe interchangeably, I've used the two terms. Obviously, they are, not, uh, they are not the same. And when I talk about pooling sovereignty and giving a bit of sovereignty away to pool it and in the end actually get more uh, sovereignty, this is something that applies to the European Union. I'm convinced that it is something that applies to the European Union plus United Kingdom. Now, the European Union with United Kingdom in it, that's the past. And that page is turned, and we can write books about whether that was a good idea or not. To me, that's the past. Let's, um, let's get over it. We had a bad marriage and a Divorce. Let's just call it a divorce. A lengthy divorce, a divorce that took a bit more time than we thought, but that page has, um, has, uh, has turned. But I'm, um, I'm convinced that, as I said, we are there one next to another. And the challenges that we have in front of us, they're very common one to, um, one to another. And that brings me to the last element I want to talk about, which is not so much about politics or economy. 
It's about gravity. Now, gravity is a concept out of physics. And gravity is interesting in the sense that gravity is there. It is invisible. You can fight it, but you cannot really win it. I mean, gravity is a constant force that is, that is there. And I'm convinced that between parts of the world that have so much in common, being it democracy, being it a rules-based order, being it a rule of law, being it a free market, being it belief in the universality of, uh, of human rights, between those part of the world which are close to another, there is gravity. And it's something we can fight or it's something we can use. How do we use the gravity between the United Kingdom and the European Union? That really is our endeavor. It obviously depends on the choices that are being made in the United Kingdom and the choices that are being made in the European Union. But the gravity between us, I'm convinced that it's up to us. And I'm convinced that gravity is something useful that we should use to strengthen our economies and to strengthen our societies. Thank you. Thank you very much, Prime Minister. Um, so I have the great privilege of sitting here, and, and I get to ask a question or two, which is, of course, a, a wonderful opportunity for me. But of course, I also want to turn it to, to the group. Um, if and when I, I say go, uh, raise your hands, and we will have people come to you with a microphone uh, to ask a question. I'm going to take the privilege really quickly. I have two quick questions about very profound problems. Uh, they're very personal questions. I grew up on the other side of the Belgian border in Germany. It was 15-minute drive to Belgium, 20-minute drive to Luxembourg. Um, and it's a part of the world that I felt was very intimately connected when I was growing up. And Berlin was really, really far away. But because you grow up in that part of the world um, as a German, which I did, uh, World War II was never far away. Um, and we're living in a time now we're, we're facing another profound problem where we have a war of aggression uh, by a leader. I wouldn't even say a country. I would say a leader who mobilizes his country's resources to wage a war of aggression. Um, and it's something that I think is, is sort of a defining, obviously a defining challenge of our time. Um, I'm going to put you on the spot if you're okay with that. Um, well, do I have a choice? <laughs> we're at the LSE where we ask questions. Uh, we look for the causes of things. Um, what do you think is, is the, the main obstacle at the moment? Or what within the European Union as an actor is the main obstacle to helping defeat that war of aggression or win that war of aggression, um, which I think we absolutely have to do as Europeans mm -hmm. um, in order to continue to talk about and, and, and execute all, all the wonderful things that we do mm -hmm. want to do in the future. If we don't solve that problem, the other stuff is going to be very difficult. Well, uh, first thing that comes to mind is what I, what I mentioned in my speech, is, um, 
is 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 continue the the um, the, the supply to uh, to Ukraine, and 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 that really is um, is the bottleneck today. Is and, and and it's good that we have our American friends taking uh, taking part of that, but I think that as Europeans we should be ready to be able to stand on our own legs and to continue to provide the support to uh, to Ukraine, which really is just industrial production of just weapons of war. Now we're we're not enthusiastic that our economy needs to transform in that side, but it is what it is, and 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 that is was my my whole point is that. A strong economy that supports a war which we have to wage is, is really at the, uh, at, uh, at the core. I know that there's been any European Council, someone is trying to say, well, but that unity is not there. And in the build-up to the Council in Brussels, there's that doubt. And every time we come out and we say the unity is still there. And, and okay, the last Council, Hungary didn't agree on everything, and okay, we'll, 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 we'll try again. But, but that unity, which I think in Moscow was being doubted, and there was a bet against European, and that that unity would not be there, it still is, uh, it still is there. And honestly, I do not see any signs on the horizon that it is, um, that it is under, uh, under, uh, under pressure. Uh, maintaining the economic sanctions is important. The impact of economic sanctions does take time making sure that there's no backdoors to the economic sanctions, which means using our influence throughout the, uh, throughout the world, I think for me, is the, um, is the, uh, is the turn Being prepared, being ready, and being able to inflict pain is really what I hear you say. Yeah, and it's not, no, that, that's a good summary, and it's not what we wanted. Look, no. uh, as Europeans, the world has shifted. We had this view of, Everyone believes in human rights. Everyone believes in democracy. Everyone believes in free trade. And it's good for everyone. The world has changed. And changed in a direction that is not our preferred direction. Now, we have to adapt. Which means that our view on trade is changing. Cha trade and geopolitics is more linked than, uh, than, than ever. Our view on defending ourselves is one where we need to allocate significant financial resources on our, on, our, uh, on our defense. All that, from a pure economic perspective, is suboptimal. That's for sure. But really suboptimal would, not, would be not to adapt to the new world. And in that new world, as Europeans, and I say Europeans, not only European Union, as uh, Europeans, we need the talk, but we also need the muscle. And we have a habit of talking. We have maybe not enough of a habit of showing some muscle. And I think we have to do it more often. And this is, of course, also an area where the UK has been a really, really important partner. Uh, Definitely. Yeah. And, and that, I think, is, it was, my, was my conclusion. We are, on so many domains, partners. And there is absolutely no doubt, and the discussion I had with your Prime Minister this morning is, you know, all those different topics. We are, uh, we are aligned. We are now in, an, in a different decision system. The whole question is, and, and to me really, I mean, the United Kingdom in the European Union, the dust has settled, that's the past. What will it be in the future? I have no idea. I would be surprised if at some point it comes back to what it was before. But do we know that we will work together and do we know that we need to work together? There's absolutely no doubt. And we will figure out an ad hoc way 
of, uh, of doing that. And instead of losing ourselves in big institutional <coughs> studies, let's just do it. And, that's, and that is what is happening today. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question. Like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. So here's the other personal question really quickly. Uh, we spoke previously before we emerged on the stage about your experience in the United States. You know the country well. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, you guys can probably tell from the way I speak that I've spent a little bit of time in the US. So, um, Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> Question mark. There's no other Americans to talk about? Uh, <laughs> today is the New Hampshire primary. Mm -hmm. uh, he's well on his way to becoming the Republican nominee yet again. Mm -hmm. Uh, it looks like a rematch uh, between President Biden and former President Trump. As a European, mm -hmm. somebody with responsibility for Europe, what do you think? I, I have no crystal ball, um, but we'll, um, look, you, you have to respect democracy and, um, and, 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 and let's hope that in any case we do not see, in whatever the outcome is, we, we don't see what happened at the Capitol years ago. But the question rather is, for us Europeans, how do you react? We need to know that we need to be ready to stand on our own legs. And of course, transatlanticism makes us stronger. And if, if both sides of the Atlantic pull in the same direction, there is no one who can beat us. But you do know that in the next decades, there will be periods where that transatlanticism is under pressure. That's almost a given. Is it going to be now, next year, or is it going to be later? No one knows, but we need to be ready. And, and, and so, uh, and even from the perspective of NATO, NATO functions better if the two sides are pulling in the same direction. And there, as European countries, we have been not pulling the weight that, that, we, should have, uh, that we should have pulled. So all these tensions and all these things that happen in the world I think up to now, it's made European, European construction stronger. And it should continue to make us uh, stronger and, and definitely not make us doubt in ourselves. I mean, we have things we believe in. We are, I would say, European continent is the best place in the world to live. There's absolutely no, no doubt on that. And you see that in the numbers. So let's be proud of it. And let's make it better. Are we ready for a second Trump presidency and all that that will bring? <laughs> well, we should do everything to be ready, which does not mean that I, that I expect it to happen. But, but uh, look, the, the, the American people will make their own choices. And thinking that we Europeans are going to influence the choices of the American people is, is an un unhealthy idea. So let's respect it. Uh, but let's be ready for whatever scenario could happen. Thank you. Okay, here we go. Hands up. Oh, there's a, okay. <laughs> see, there's a woman right there. Um, yes, you. We'll start there, and then. Um, merci, Premier Ministre. 
d'être ici avec nous aujourd'hui. J'ai um, suivi votre récent adresse au Parlement européen regarding Uh, the priorities of the Belgian presidency, mm -hmm. notably being the strategic autonomy and econo economic competitiveness. Mm -hmm. um, I wanted to ask you, what do you think that health wasn't mentioned as part of it? Health being also addressing the um, protection of our citizen and the strengthening of our economy with pharmaceutical um, competitiveness and industry in Europe and also preparing our future with climate change and health. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Sure, yeah. And, and I only had 20 minutes, so I couldn't of mention all, uh, all topics. But I think the main issue is that European countries today see health as a cost. And it is way more than a cost. I mean, health is obviously a factor in, in your, your economy. A healthy population definitely has a broad range of, of benefits. And health is an economic industry, is an industry with, with, which is based on innovation and, and, and has, has, has a rippling effect which goes much further. That to me is the main shift we need to make. The majority of European countries, they see it as a budget line, whereas, I mean, a country like Belgium, which has a lot of pharmaceutical um, activity, our calculation is that for every euro we spend on healthcare, actually we get three euros back because of the, the, the type of economic activity that we have. And economic activity, which in the end, I mean, most of the big pharmaceuticals which are in Belgium are not Belgian firms. I mean, they look throughout the world and they say, what's the best place to go? And they come to Belgium because we're good. Hello, and thank you so much for your visit today. We really appreciate it. Uh, you talked a lot about the unity of the EU and the European continent in general. And the question that I have is, how do you think Orban's position affects EU unity? And don't you think that EU's response to Orban's blackmail is too weak in terms of, especially the, in the context of Ukraine and the war that's happening right now? Thank you yeah, so much. You should have stopped your question at too weak. That would have been a powerful, <laughs> powerful question. Um, Look, in, in, in a, when you're a group of 27, you need to deal with different opinions. And, uh, and that is perfectly fine. I mean, after our presidency, the next presidency will be Hungary. Some countries or some people have said, well, shouldn't we take away the presidency from Hungary? I totally disagree with that. I mean, Hungary is part of the European Union. They will play their role. They might have different opinions on some, some, on some topics than other, than other countries. But being in that position also responsibilizes them. I mean, the one who is the president of the European Union, let me reassure you on that. We are not the boss of the European Union. We are the one making the compromise, which often means the opposite than, than, being, uh, than, being, uh, than being the boss. Now, um, I think we have established quite a good framework to make sure that the fundamental values of the fundamental rules of what we stand for are being respected. We have a conditionality mechanism on the rule of law, which works. 10 billion uh, euros of cohesion funds will be released. Uh, not cohesion funds, 10 billion euros will be, uh, will be released based on the fact that the European Commission sees progress in Hungary on some dimensions. And on those dimensions, the progress is there. On other dimensions, the progress is not there and 20 billion is still blocked. And, you know, for lack of a better expression, money works. And it's a way of putting, uh, of putting, uh, of putting pressure. So um, that is the, the, the more 
institutional part. On the functioning of the European Council, yes, we've had difficult discussions. And on the last Council, there is a big discussion on what happened. Did Mr. Orban go for a sanitary break or not? Um, what I saw is that a country did decide not to use his unanimity blocking right. And that's the most important, is that at some point, even if you have a different opinion, you say, okay, I'm not going to block what I see being built around 26 countries, and I'm not going to use my, uh, my unanimity right. And, and that has to do with what happens around that table, is listening to each other and trying to understand. The, I mean, I'm, I'm a very big believer in rational human behavior. Now, I know that irrational human behavior is a whole building here in, in, in your study, uh, in, in the academic work, and of course it's not. Not everyone is always 100% rational. But in those discussions, I mean, yes, when a head of state has a certain view, a certain direction, it is because there is a certain rational behavior behind it, which does not mean that I agree with it, but we need to, uh, we need to deal with it. So I'm, I'm, um, we can write books about it, or we can deal with it. And what I see is that we do deal with it. The conditionality mechanism did work. I mean, some of the reforms in the judicial system have happened. More needs to happen, and it will, because we're still blocking 20 billion. 20 billion works. Let's see really quickly if there's perhaps a question from the online audience. We can bring the microphone down this way. We have a question from Omar Hamid uh, from Newcastle University. The question is, how relevant is the UN to Belgian and European diplomacy today, and how can the UN be improved from a Belgian perspective? Um, it's it's the, the element of multilateralism which I did not, uh, which I did not, not mention. I think more, more, more relevant than ever. I mean, if there is one place where we meet and where we talk with people with whom we disagree, it's there. And, and, and that needs, we need more places than that, where we can sit around the table and listen to each other and understand why certain positions are, are there. I mean, the evolution in the world is one where there's different views on how to organize society. In our view, is that a combination of independence, justice, and democracy, and free market, and so on, that that's the optimal model. And I will defend that in the rest of the world. But there's different views in that. Uh, but certain things we all agreed on. The universality of human rights is something which we did agree on. There is no cultural relativity to human rights. There is no view where you can say, well, no, we have a dis different history, so women's rights are not important. No, 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 that's not what we agreed on. And on that dimension, the UN has more than ever a role to play. Uh, in peacekeeping, definitely also. But we see that there is limits on, on how far that, that can go and that decisions in the, in the UN Security Council are sometimes difficult and, 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 and I mean, we've talked about Ukraine, we have not yet talked about the, the war in the, um, in the Middle East. Um, it's atrocious what is happening there and, and so many civilians being killed uh, where we as Europeans are being challenged all the time on the fact whether we have double standards or not. 
and I don't think we have double standards, but the question is being asked by some countries. So we should have an answer to, uh, to that, and the answer should not only be in words, but also be in action. Let's go to the very front. Sorry. Yes, please. Hi, um, I'm from the National newspaper. Um, how will you use your uh, Belgium's presidency to shape um, the EU's stance on what's going on in the Middle East on wait, the Israel wait, to Gaza war? Shape what? Sorry, can you put a bit closer? The EU's, uh, the Europe's position on what's going on in the Middle East okay. on the Israel right. Gaza war. Yeah. So, as uh, you might have seen, uh, my, my colleague Peter Sanchez and, and myself went to the region a, a few uh, a few weeks ago, and and very clear. On, on, on two things, and I think you can, you know, as a person, you can defend two positions. I can, at the same time, say that the terrorist attacks of Hamas are atrocious, that hostages need to be released immediately, unconditionally, and at the same time, say that in military operations, more need to be done to have no more civilian casualties. In, in a conflict like that, very often you're being pushed in one camp or the other. I'm not in one camp, I'm not in, in any camp, or maybe on one camp, and the camp is human lives. And, and when you have that quantity of human lives being lost, in 10,000 children dead in a period of 100 days, so that's 100 children every day, um, that demands a ceasefire. And that's the position of Belgium. And, and that is our position since last Friday. And, and you know, I've, I've really been struggling with this because the, the hostage situation is, is, is a cruel one. Um, but hostages have been liberated a few weeks ago. They have been liberated because people talked one with another, because violence stopped. Um, and really, Violence needs to stop, humanitarian ac access needs to happen, hostages need to be released, and if there is any moment been in the last 20 years to work on a two-state solution, it's now. And, and let's use that moment to, uh, to, do, it, uh, to do it now. Please, please, let's stop, uh, let, let's stop the violence. I, 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 I understand that Israel wants to eliminate the terrorist threat to its population. That's a very legitimate uh, concern. Um, but are the current operations contributing to that? I will need to be convinced. Okay. Right there in the middle. Yes, you have a mic. Go for it. Thank you, Mr. Prime Minister. Thank you for joining us today. Um, you mentioned the war in Ukraine. You mentioned economic cooperation in Europe. You mentioned that the Belgian economy is more than beer and chocolate. Of course, diamonds is one of the most important elements of the <laughs> Belgian economy uh, globally. How do you feel that the leading position Belgium has over diamonds is being slowly relinquished to the United Arab Emirates? And by extension, how do you feel that the UAE is friends with Russia? Okay, so, so, so rightfully so. Uh, so we are more than diamonds as well. But, um, <laughs> but, 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 but I mentioned football. And, uh, yeah, football, yeah. <laughs> That's true. I think all, all games we played against England, we won the last 10 years now. <laughs> All right, I did not accept, expect that reaction. <laughs> now, diamonds, and rightfully so. So the diamonds discussion, obviously, Russian diamonds are financing the war. So uh, we wanted to block that, and we, 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 um, we wanted to find a way to block access of Russian diamonds to our retail stores. The easy way was to say, 
we do a uh, we, we, we stop trading Russian diamonds in wholesale, but then it would go to other places in the world and it wouldn't end up in our stores in any case. So that would have no impact whatsoever on, 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 on Russian miners uh, and it would only impact our economy. That is why, and we've worked really hard for months in a row with the G7. You might know that we Belgians are not part of the G7. We will not be soon either. Um, and, but, but we worked on a solution of full traceability of, of, diamonds to be able, of Russian diamonds to be able to, to close them out completely. Now, the system we build is a blockchain-based uh, technology which also fully records all the financial flows. And that really is an important element because besides keeping Russian diamonds out, what we also want, and that's not only for diamonds, is that commodity trading in general is an industry where the financial flows are, let's say, do not always have the same level of transparency as we see in other, in other domains. And so what we develop there, I think, is really a, a very promising technology to also modernize anything that happens in commodity uh, trading. But so that system will, on, on diamonds, I think it will, will, come, will be implemented, I think, March 1st or, or April uh, 1st. And, and I mean, we, G7 countries in the large sense, we are 75% 70, of, uh, of the market. And it's to the benefit of everyone who is mining commodities or mining diamonds in, in, in the proper way. It, it also offers an opportunity to better share the proceeds of mining, I mean, of diamonds. Today, the proceeds of diamonds are, well, let's say they're not always in the mining country. Uh, and, and it offers an opportunity to, to, better, uh, to better balance that. But we really hard, worked hard on that. We received some criticism because we did not go faster. We accepted that criticism, but I think now we have something which, which really serves the purpose. Gentleman right behind. Goedemiddag, meneer de premier. Bedankt voor uw komst en voor uw zeer interessante speech. Um, with the Could upcoming... Translate, he said I'm the best, <laughs> but no. <laughs> exactly. Um, with the upcoming elections, both in the EU and on uh, several member states' levels as well, uh, and the increasing strength of uh, populist radical right parties in the EU, uh, how can we ensure that um, this increasing strength of these parties uh, doesn't jeopardize the unity um, of the EU you have referred to um, several times? Thank you. Yeah. Um, important question, because, for example, I think recently IFD in Germany um, talked specifically about leaving the European Union or leaving the, uh, leaving the Euro. So that is, um, I mean, economically speaking, uh, I think there have been some examples showing that leaving the European Union is economically maybe not always the optimal choice. <laughs> I said not always the optimal choice. There's an interpretation in that. Um, but that's what, what I said. I mean, if you look at, at the, the, the classic economic indicators, one could say that despite all the crises in which we are, as European countries, we've managed quite well. But the classic economic indicators is obviously not what we need to look at. I think a big part of the public looks forward and has what I call the fear of loss and, and, and has an existential, existential fear that the future of their children will not be as good as their own. And that is almost a biological driver that, that we all want a better future for our kids than the one that we, than the life that we had ourselves. And, and, and so I, to me, part of that answer is 
showing that we're there to protect our population. In a world which is more turbulent than ever, we Europeans are there to protect them. And, and, and the war in Ukraine and, and the impact of what is happening in the Middle East, I mean, there's not a lack of opportunities to show what we do to protect our, uh, our, our population. I think the other underlying element is the belief in progress. And I think in the European continent, the belief in progress was a main driver of what we created, which is if I work hard, if I'm ambitious, if I'm an entrepreneur, I will reap the benefits of that. And I think that belief is under pressure. And that is different in, in, in different countries, but the idea I work hard, I'm ambitious, I'm going for it, and I will get the benefits of it. At least that thought is being doubted on. And that we need to restore. Is that, you know, as I said, if the economy goes well, we should all reap the benefits of that. And if the economy is not doing well, we should be sure that everyone is, uh, is protected. And everyone needs to get a fair chance. And the payoff of someone who is successful can be high, but should be the highness of it or the, the level of it should be linked to the value added to society that it provides. I think that element in some cases is broken or at least under pressure. And I'm a liberal and I believe in the free market and so on, but I believe that I mean you need to you need rules and you need to correct it. So we're under a tight schedule. Everyone, um, so I think we're getting toward the end of it. I wanted two to more. give Maybe uh, an, another more. another online question, perhaps, and then one more. Oh, somebody really stretches. Uh, the lady with the glasses right there in the middle. Yes, she really wanted it. <laughs> okay, so let's do the online one first, and then okay. you get. The uh, we have a few questions that I'm. Um, putting on the same category about uh, populist parties and what's your, what's your view on this? Um, there's one from an LSE student from Berlin. Um, how do you categorize the possible big gains of populist parties in the next European parliamentary elections? Yeah, so populist parties are there already. If you look at the European Parliament, I mean, they're, they're there and, 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 and you hear them. Um, I, I think there's a few threats. One of them is the mainstreaming of the populist message. And, and you see that happening throughout, uh, throughout Europe. And, and, and some things that five years ago I would have said, I'm closing my ears now, are being almost normalized. And I think that's a, that's a dangerous thing. But then let's also look at, at, I mean, what happens when populist parties come into, uh, come into power? I mean, in some countries, press freedom is under big pressure. Not even under pressure. It's, gone away for a part. And the basic liberties, for example, of LGBTQIs are being, uh, are being, being, uh, being limited. If you look in uh, some countries, okay, adoption of a kid uh, of, of children in same-sex marriages are being prohibited. I mean, these were all things we thought that on civil liberties we would only go forward. We don't. And so, um, you know, at some point in life, all of us are a minority, one way or another, at some point in life. So you can always think, it's never going to happen to me. But at some point in life, you will be a minority. And your rights could be under pressure. So let's be careful. Okay. 
So last question there. For last the question. Before you ask your question, let me just say really quickly to the audience, um, I've been asked to ask you to remain seated until the two of us have exited the stage. Um, <laughs> not sure why, but that's how we do it. And so last question right there in the middle. Yes. Hello. Um, so thank you. So um, I'm a European, like I, I went to the European school in Brussels. So obviously part of the curriculum is learning about the EU. And oftentimes when I get into like discussions with people that are from you know, other countries in the EU and we discuss the EU, a lot of times they kind of shift towards kind of populist views sometimes because they kind of don't really understand what the EU is, what they do, how it works. And therefore my question to you is how do you think you can like strengthen like youth's knowledge on the EU? Do you think it should be like part of education in the EU countries just so that they can make like educated like choices? I think it should, and I think that in most countries it is. Now, maybe one of the first learnings is that some people say, you know, the EU is expensive. You know, the EU budget is 1.2% of GDP. 1.2%. In most governments on the national level are somewhere between 40 and 50% of, uh, of GDP. So, so, I mean, the benefit we get from a budget which really is not, that, uh, is not that big, we should explain that better. Now, the functioning is complicated. Now, the functioning is complicated because our societies are complicated. It's a reflection of who, of who, we, uh, uh, of who we are. What is important today is that, you know, the European Union in the past was built on visionary leaders who had incredibly, almost crazy, ambitious ideas and really all pulled this forward. The single market was really an exotic idea when it was started. The idea of having a single currency, I remember that people said, whoa, are we going to do that? I mean, these were visionary leaders pulling us forward. Today, it's the other way around. Today, what I feel, it's our European populations who are pushing us forward. Our European populations who say, you know, on climate change, you're not going, you're not going to be able to do this on your own. The issues we have with energy dependence, we all know that member states are not going to be able to deal with it themselves. And so today, Europe is being pushed forward by the population and not being pulled forward by some visionary leaders. And if you look at the EU barometers throughout Europe, the level of expectation in the European Union is really high, even in countries which are supposed to be Eurosceptic. Politically, they're Eurosceptic. On the population side, they're not. And so this is our, our big assignment, is how do we use the push that comes from our population to build a more effective and a, and a, better, uh, and a better Europe? Simple, it is never going to be, I, uh, I fear. But will it in the future become more democratic? Will we at some point be able to vote, for example, all Europeans for who will be our political leaders and not doing it in a stage system through the countries as it is today, I'm convinced we will do it one day. Are we ready for it today? No. That's because my generation is not ready for it, but I'm convinced your generation is. Thank you for great questions and a great uh, opportunity to talk.
only one thing left to say, and that is, of course, it's been a great pleasure, an opportunity for us to listen to Prime Minister. Um, it's been great to have all of you here, but I really want to thank you for making time to spend time with us. And of course, we have a little something for you to take home. So thank you very much, everyone. Have a great day. All right. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.